Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode... High River Alberta's Cargill plant is North America's single biggest outbreak, with more than 900 cases and two related deaths. Employees say 60 to 80 percent of the workforce is Filipino. Given the numbers of ethnic minority Canadians in essential service positions, further data could show if certain Canadians are taking on the lion's share of the risk. The golden rule of staying safe since the beginning of this pandemic has been to self-isolate and take off work at the first signs of any COVID-19 symptoms. But how does that work for a family of five living in a three-bedroom apartment building with children and elderly in-laws? That's tough reality for many Canadians right now, especially those living in Peel region. And the disproportionate risk seems to be falling on ethnic and racial minorities. This activist says Montreal North is home to many frontline workers in cramped apartments and says the government didn't act fast enough. The fact that the black population is contracting the virus doesn't mean that, you know, they are more prone to be uh, infected by any virus. They're just more prone to inequalities. One of the key impacts to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic was its capacity to highlight in stark relief inequities in our society, specifically those groups of people who suffered disproportionately from the restrictions, employment demands, and health risks resulting from COVID-19. The result has been a heightened awareness of the urgent need for DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, within society generally, and especially within the workplace. Global movements like Black Lives Matter, demands for equity and inclusion by LGBTQ2S plus communities, and persons with disabilities have all gained traction and momentum since 2020, especially among young people involved in social justice issues. And many Canadians believe that nonprofits that focus their efforts on the marginalized or disadvantaged in our communities should be at the forefront of such a movement. But are Canadian nonprofit organizations ready to take the next step in their diversity, equity, and inclusion journey? And what tools and resources are available to help make a meaningful transition to DEI? In this episode, we'll explore best practices and new strategies for making positive change and lasting impact in the sector, along with practical steps that nonprofits of any size will find useful. The business world of companies, corporations of all sizes, they have a very important role in how to shape the country, the voices, the people they invite in to be their workers and their employees. The more people, the more diversity, equity, inclusion, and disability that we include within the workforce, it reshapes the country. 
Certainly there's a lot more talk about equity, diversity and inclusion today than there was three years ago. There's a lot more focus on truth and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples than there was three years ago. And certainly people are prepared now to name things like anti-Black racism and recognize that they are real problems. However, when we dig into the numbers, when we look at the actions, I think there's still quite a long way to go. They're noticing how the system that we all operate in, how it has become our autopilot. And because of that, if we don't stop and notice, we're not going to achieve the equitable outcomes that we want. Although I've seen more tokenistic discussions of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the nonprofit space, in terms of measurable impact, we've taken a step back over the pandemic. And that doesn't mean that we can't take a couple steps forward again, especially as we continue to adjust to what has happened over the past few years and move into this next phase. What I don't realize is being in a board is being in leadership. And that tone that we need to see starts in the boardroom. It starts off with that internal perspective for each board member. So what is my role in moving the needle when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? What is my role in ensuring that the decisions that we are making at the board table reflect the people that we are serving? More companies are focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. They might sound like three ways of saying the same thing, but there's more to it. Diversity is increasing the presence of all kinds of people. Equity ensures fair opportunities and treatment by dealing with biases and discrimination. And inclusion is a conscious effort to proactively welcome different kinds of people. Advocacy to make Canadian nonprofit organizations more diverse, equitable, and inclusive is not new. However, during the pandemic, social justice movements such as Black Lives Matter, equity and inclusion for LGBTQ Two-Spirit Plus communities, and persons with disabilities, and acknowledging the tragic history of residential schools in Canada, have amplified the crucial need for nonprofits to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion as an essential and fundamental component of their leadership, operations, and workplace. In 2022, a survey by Charity Village found that while the majority of Canadian organizations were committed to DEI, most said they didn't know how to achieve it and didn't even know how or where to begin. The study, which is available for free at charityvillage.com, also revealed that over half of the organizations participating in the survey claim to have at least 25% representation from underrepresented groups among employees in non-management roles. However, the number is less than half of that for staff and management and senior management roles. Over the past 30 months, there has been a noticeable increase in general awareness and enthusiasm for embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion within nonprofit organizations. But are sector leaders and professionals actually rolling up their sleeves and doing what needs to be done to make DEI in their organizations a reality? In this episode, you'll hear from experts in creating equitable nonprofit organizations from the board level to the workplace. 
They'll share their insights and strategies for supporting this important transformation in the sector. And we'll also tell you about some exciting new resources that, full disclosure, Charity Village has developed in partnership with several of our guests to help nonprofits achieve their DEI objectives. No matter where your organization is on its diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. To lay the foundation for this discussion, I asked Dr. Wendy Sukir if she thought the sector in general was making inroads toward fully embracing DEI. Dr. Sukir is one of Canada's leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is founder of the Diversity Institute at Toronto Metropolitan University, where she's helped pioneer initiatives such as the Women Entrepreneurship Hub and research lead of the Future Skills Centre. It's an interesting question because certainly there's a lot more talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion today than there was three years ago. There's a lot more focus on truth and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples than there was three years ago. And certainly people are prepared now to name things like anti-Black racism and recognize that they are real problems. In that regard, we've made a lot of progress in my view. However, when we dig into the numbers, when we look at the actions, I think there's still quite a long way to go. And we know in the sector, for example, women for a long time have held most of the roles in the nonprofit and charitable sector, but they tend still to be underrepresented in leadership relative to their representation in the workforce. We know that racialized people and newcomers and especially black people are still very underrepresented, especially in leadership roles. And persons with disabilities and those who identify as Indigenous or LGBTQ2S plus are still almost invisible. So when it comes to actual representation at the top of the house, I think we still see some gaps. When it comes to actual policies and programs and accountability frameworks, one of the Stats Canada results of their survey was that only about 30% of charitable and nonprofit organizations they spoke to had a written policy on EDI, for example, for the board of directors. So it's a question of glass half full, glass half empty. We've come a long way, but there's certainly lots more to do. Dr. Sukir's thoughts about finding a DEI starting point for nonprofits are echoed by Trish Mandewo, a diversity and inclusion strategist, entrepreneur, board professional, and member of the Coquitlam City Council. She's also CEO and founder of Synergy Executive Boards Consulting Group, a company that recruits and supports the advancement of Black, Indigenous, and visible minority experts and executives. She advises sector leaders to be honest and open about any struggles they may be having when it comes to adding diversity to their organizations and activities. The first thing always, always is to get a baseline. You have to know where you are at. And for each and every organization or any nonprofit out there, the stage that they are at is different from the next one. So get your baseline so you can know where you're studying. And then from there, they need to create a roadmap. And with that, I mean, they need to find the pragmatic approach that's going to get them to the intended results. So when they know this is where we are at, and then they set a target of where they want to go, they set the steps and to ensure that those steps are also measurable. 
if we don't put those KPIs in place, the organization is not going to be able to know whether they are really going forward or not. And the last thing that I want to tell organizations is be vulnerable. Be able to say, I don't know where to go from now. Can you help me? Be vulnerable even to their staff, to their teams, to say, we don't know, we're trying our best, but we don't know where we're going. And what about first steps at the board level? For Trish Mandewo, any conversations occurring in nonprofit boards about diversity, equity, and inclusion should begin with internal reflection for each board member. What we're seeing at the board level is even more confusion because the board is going, we are here to govern. And to them, they cannot put governance in the same statement as DER. If you look at all the different types of governance models, they are very prescriptive. So as a director, someone steps in and they're going, I'm doing what is required of me as a director. What they don't realize is being in a board is being in leadership. And that tone that we need to see starts in the boardroom. It starts off with that internal perspective for each board member. So what is my role in moving the needle when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? What is my role in ensuring that the decisions that we are making at the board table reflect the people that we are serving? I like to tell people that in the boardroom, it's a two-pronged approach. One, the board is a group recognizing the importance of DEI. The other part is that individual journey for each board member to realize that they've got work to do. The video of Floyd's death while in police custody sparked an uprising and a reckoning over racial injustice. And in the U.S., it's brought about some of the most dramatic reforms since the civil rights era. It was the moment the world finally refused to look away, letting out a collective gasp as George Floyd took his final breaths under the knee of a police officer. The outrage was felt around the world, including Canada, forcing a racial awakening during a pandemic while police accountability was thrust into the spotlight. I think it's the worst than it's been. I think that I think they've broken our trust numerous times, and we've seen it throughout this year, and that they have a lot of work to do. Unfunded, Black Communities Overlooked by Canadian Philanthropy is the title of a 2020 research report prepared by the Network for the Advancement of Black Communities and Carleton University's Philanthropy and Nonprofit Leadership Program. The report's research and analysis suggests that the Canadian philanthropic sector has failed to support the urgent and specific needs of black communities in Canada. The report goes on to say that the sector lacks both the tools and the knowledge to support black communities effectively. Speaking to CBC News, one of the study's authors notes that philanthropy really is quite white, from staffing to executive leadership to the board. When you ask yourself, how do the funding decisions reflect the makeup of the landscape, you shouldn't be surprised that black communities have been excluded. Chanel Grenaway is CEO and founder of Grenaway & Associates. In her over 15 years of consultancy work, she's helped many nonprofits, foundations, grassroots organizations, and agency leaders, including our own organization, Charity Village, build their capacity in creating equitable, inclusive programs that enhance their mission and goals. When I spoke with her, she pointed out that many nonprofits sometimes can't move beyond the first stages of the DEI journey. 
So everyone is really having some type of conversation about what's happening in the area of diversity, equity, inclusion, what they're seeing, what they're feeling. So conversations are happening. I would also say that awareness building is happening and what I would sometimes call noticing. So people, leaders, staff, board of directors are now taking pause and noticing their own biases. They're noticing how the system that we all operate in, how it has become our autopilot. And because of that, if we don't stop and notice, we're not going to achieve the equitable outcomes that we want. So they're noticing that we need to go beyond diversity. We need to really delve deeper into inclusion and equity and really figure out what that means. What I'm not seeing though yet, and I say yet because I can only have an optimistic attitude in order to stay in this work. I'm not seeing lots of headway in terms of conversations around power, conversations around privilege, conversations related to how decisions are made. So conversations really related to cultural change and organizational structure change that'll actually start to produce the outcomes that we want. While some organizations have been slow to act beyond diversity in their workplaces, others have been adding the word justice to their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. I was curious to know what Chanel Grenaway thought of this development. Many organizations have started with diversity work, and then maybe they move to inclusion work, equity work, and then there is this frame now and, and language around justice. For me, a justice lens and a justice approach is really looking at the systemic barriers and structures that, again, are legacies of colonization that exist in almost every sphere of society that we're all working and living under that, again, are creating harm and exclusionary practices for Black, First Nations, Métis, Inuit people, racialized communities and other equity-seeking groups. So justice says, ask really specific and explicit questions related to the system. So it could question things like language that we use. Language is powerful and carries meaning. So in some spaces, I've had conversations with boards and EDs about what does it mean to be equity-centered and using equity-centered as a justice approach because we're actually trying, again, to change structures within the organization. There's many paths towards equity and equality. I truly believe that there are places and spaces where, yes, a justice lens is valid and should be used, and we need to start there. But there are other places and spaces where you start working within the system and you can start making changes there. If you're working within the system, what I always advise is that you find ways that you can impact or influence the system. So even though you might be working on something a little bit more micro, Take your learnings, share them. How can you use that to advocate for systems change? We need more people to advocate for us and say, you know what? It doesn't matter if we have special needs, we can still get the job done. We're still human beings. We still have personality. We still have feelings. We still have emotions. That shouldn't limit us from ever getting a job, no matter where we apply to. Rauji wants to work as a clerk in a medical office. After studying and training, she has had 70 interviews, but so far hasn't been able to convince anyone to give her a chance. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, 
One in seven working-age adults in OECD countries identifies as having a disability, and the number is growing among younger people. The exclusion from meaningful work they experience is compounded by low levels of income and social engagement. In its October 2022 report, titled Disability, Work, and Inclusion, the OECD documents the current labor market for people with disability. The conclusions drawn by the report is that the efforts initiated some 20 years ago of making disability policies proactive and employment-oriented had not been realized. More specifically, the organization states that key areas of disability policy, such as policies to support young people and improve the skills of those with disabilities, have failed to generate enough attention. The report points to a missing link to better labor market inclusion, namely rigorous disability mainstreaming in all relevant policies. Each guest I spoke with for this episode emphasized the crucial need for nonprofits to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion as an essential and fundamental component of their leadership, operations, and workplace. But there's an aspect to DEI that is sometimes overlooked, a persistent gap in employment opportunities and educational or skills attainment for those with disabilities. To explore this, I spoke with Josh Basili, a C45 quadriplegic, disability rights advocate and lawyer. In his late teens, Josh was paralyzed below the shoulders in an accident. Soon after, he formed a nonprofit to empower newly injured families and created the world's largest paralysis video mentoring network, Spinalpedia.com. As a medical malpractice lawyer and disabilities rights advocate, Josh serves persons with disabilities both in the courtroom and through policy initiatives. As a community leader and changemaker, he works to improve the quality of life for people with disabilities and break down existing barriers to access and inclusion. That includes helping improve web accessibility and usability by joining solutions provider Accessibi as community relations manager. We began our conversation with Josh telling me about the fateful day that changed the course of his life permanently. When I was 18 years old, I was on a family vacation at the beach. I was in waist high water. A wave picked me up and threw me over my boogie board and slammed me on my head. And that day I shattered my neck. I became paralyzed below my shoulders. I remember floating face down in the water and just hoping my friends would see me. And they did. They pulled me to shore. Woke up 14 days later in a critical unit with a ventilator, helping me to breathe so the only way I could communicate was with my eyes by blinking once for yes or twice for no. And when I did regain my voice, I made sure that every word from that moment on counted. And that's the day I became an advocate for life. For a disability rights advocate like Josh Basili, prioritizing accessibility in any organization, nonprofit or otherwise, has the potential to reshape the country, no less. And like those who seek to add justice to the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, Josh Basili would like to see a wider scope to diversity, equity, and inclusion through the addition of one simple word, disability. The business world of companies, corporations of all sizes, they have a very important role in how to shape the country, the voices, the people they invite in to be their workers and their employees. 
the more people, the more diversity, equity, inclusion, and disability that we include within the workforce, it reshapes the country. It reshapes the conversation. It allows companies to have a better opportunity to communicate with a broader customer base, all abilities, not just certain abilities that have access to their website or their stores on two feet. So both the business world, but then the nonprofit world, the nonprofit world are the big change makers on the ground that are reshaping it for people with disabilities or vulnerable populations that need supports or different services that can just better the world and change the world. I love my nonprofits. They're the best. They do the work on the ground, the tough work on the ground to make the world a better place and to make a difference. So it's just so important that both the nonprofit and for-profit sector have the DEI and disability. A lot of times they just say diversity, equity, inclusion, but I love to say DEI and disability because it's an important piece of the puzzle. Josh Basili and I also spoke about how the pandemic actually leveled the playing field a bit more for workers with disabilities by the pivot to remote or hybrid workplaces. At the same time, he raised a flag about web accessibility issues, something that remote work depends on, that organizations should keep in mind when making their workplaces, virtual or in-person, more welcoming to those with disabilities. Before the pandemic, too often, unfortunately, many people with disabilities were stuck in their homes and did not venture out as much as they could. And then the pandemic happened. It happened even more because we were trapped in our homes even more so. But with that being trapped, the world started to pay more attention to the fact that people with disabilities need access to the world around them. And that if it's not a physical storefront that's accessible, the internet needs to be accessible. And less than 3% of the internet meets guidelines, which govern kind of what accessibility is on the internet. More and more people talked about it, and then it became more mainstream. More people were like, all right, what can we do about this? And that's why we started to hear more. But then also, a lot of times we didn't hear a lot about disability prior as much because workers with disabilities are the most unemployed or underemployed population than any other group in the country. And that's starting to change. The numbers are increasing more so than ever. I actually believe because of the pandemic, because remote work has been a viable option more so than ever. And before, a lot of people didn't believe if if you weren't you know, making it in because of a transportation barrier to work or because you weren't in the office, you weren't working. And what we've seen is people can work at a high level with the right accommodations in place. And for people with disabilities, some people with disabilities, having the option to work from home is transformative. Later in this episode, we'll discuss Charity Village's partnership with Accessibee and the new widget the company has developed to help ensure websites are instantly accessible to people with disabilities. I asked Josh Basili about some of the current navigational barriers that can make websites inaccessible for some. Whether you have a mobility disability, a visual disability, cognitive, whether you have epilepsy, there's so many different abilities that exist in this world today. One in four in the U.S. for adults are considered to be living with some form of disability. And no matter what your abilities are, you actually experience and navigate a website differently. Some people have different disabilities, so they have reading software to make them know what is actually in front of them. 
And if you have a mobility disability, a lot of times use voice dictation software. So as fast as you can speak and can type, if a certain form is not there to, to take your voice dictation software, you can't type your name or your credit card information. I use an on-screen keyboard to navigate a page. I tap through different sections. I go to the menus. I go to the drop-down menus. And if a website doesn't have accessibility built in, I can't access that, and I'm stuck on the home page. I can't go to the drop-down menu to get to the next page and beyond. So you want to be able to make sure that people not only have a safe experience on websites, but they also can use the website. They can navigate the website and get from point A to point Z and everything in between without falling through the cracks or having to ask someone for help. Everybody deserves the, the ability to be able to navigate a page on their own with their own unique technology and abilities. And when you do be able to bring accessibility or usability to a web page, it's transformative and it gives people the, the ability to have better experiences and options. In its special report on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, LifeWorks Mental Health Index recently found that Canadian workers with disabilities are nearly twice as likely to say that their organization does not value diversity and inclusion. The MHI for November 2022 also revealed that 70% of workers with disabilities in Canada feel like they're not valued at work. The full report is available on our website at charityvillage.com. We'll also explore workplace mental health in the nonprofit sector on the next episode of this podcast. We begin tonight with authorities just moments ago on the deadly attack in Colorado Springs. The suspect who opened fire inside an LGBTQ club is now expected to be formally charged with murder and hate crimes charges. The gunman, 22 years old, armed with an AR-style rifle, killing five people and injuring at least 19 others. The attack late Saturday night at Club Q in Colorado Springs and it served as a safe haven for the LGBTQ community for more than two decades. Shockwaves rippled through LGBTQ communities when news broke of a mass shooting at a Colorado Springs nightclub hosting a drag show, leaving five people dead and 18 people injured. The suspect in the November 2022 attack was facing five counts of first-degree murder and five counts of a bias-motivated crime causing bodily injury. According to a report released by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation a week before the National Transgender Day of Remembrance, which fell on the Sunday following the Saturday evening mass shooting, at least 32 transgender and gender nonconforming people have been killed in the United States in 2022. When I spoke with Jade Pichette, Director of Programs at Pride at Work Canada, about DEI in the nonprofit sector for LGBTQ2S plus Canadians, it was only days after the tragic mass shooting in Colorado Springs. Even as we discuss the community's response to the latest violent crime in the U.S., it became clear that Canada was not immune from hate crimes and violence targeting LGBTQ2S plus people. In fact, according to Jade Pichette, they significantly increased over the pandemic. With the tragic shooting in Colorado, which, as should be mentioned, happened at a LGBTQ venue after a drag queen story hour was announced on the weekend of the Trans Day of Remembrance, where we honor our dead. 
for myself as a trans person who's been out for two decades, which is very rare for most trans people. Most trans people have not been out that long. It's something that we see as a consistent and ongoing challenge. We've gotten to this place where because there is legal rights, at least here in Canada, that is not necessarily true on a global basis by any means. In fact, in some places, our identities are still criminalized, including by death penalty. These issues are things that we sometimes think are part of our history instead of part of our present. But the reality is, is that over the pandemic, hate crimes have risen in Canada significantly against 2SLGBTQIA plus communities. And it's really hard to see any queer trans person in public life who is not being attacked in some capacity. In fact, Faye Johnson, who's the executive director of Wisdom to Action, got flooded by a number of hate messages. I myself made a post last week, just got flooded with hate messages. And this is not that uncommon. Every queer organization I know constantly has to screen their social media for death threats, for hate speech. And that's something that we just have to deal with in our daily lives. And so it's something that as a society we have thought is in the past, but in practice is actually increasing and rising in terms of the amount of violence against our communities. In the current environment, are nonprofits doing their part to make their organizations safer and more welcoming for LGBTQ2S plus people? And if not, what should they be doing? I asked Jade Pichette for a snapshot of the current landscape what impact the pandemic has had on their efforts, and what advice they could offer for organizations looking to do more. In terms of the nonprofit sector, it has been mixed. Although I do work a lot with the corporate sector and large employers now, I'm a career nonprofit person, and I've seen how we're inching towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we're starting to gain some steam over the 2010s. And then we hit the 2020s and the pandemic hit. And 90% of charities and nonprofits in Canada had a negative impact on their bottom lines. We're lucky in that we're not one of those organizations. We actually grew during the pandemic. And I know some other organizations who are in similar spots, but many had to shrink, many had to cut jobs, many had to do a lot of these things. And quite often what happens in those cases is the first people to go are the folks who are the most junior, who are often those who are more marginalized, who are often the equity hires, who are often the people who are diversifying the organization in different ways. And so on merely a people level, we saw this absolute impact on equity deserving communities in accessing consistent employment in the nonprofit sector. And so this is a real concern. So it's not just a concern of how are we going to continue to have enough workers? It's also a concern of this is affecting the diversity of our organization. And so as a result, although I've seen more tokenistic discussions of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the nonprofit space, in terms of measurable impact, we've taken a step back over the pandemic. And that doesn't mean that we can't take a couple steps forward again, especially as we continue to adjust to what has happened over the past few years. 
and move into this next phase. But that is a real concern that I see in terms of measurable impact. And I know there's been some studies, for instance, on 2S LGBTQI plus communities, and we have been found to have been more economically impacted by the pandemic than any others. And many of us work in the nonprofit sector. Most queer and trans folks work in small and medium-sized employers, or a lot of us work in nonprofit. And it's something that is impacting the community as a whole. So unless we address those factors and the factors of support for staff in the consistent work and ongoing work and even just getting outside of this contract world, because there's no inclusion or equity in contracts. There is inclusion and equity in full-time permanent employment or by that person's choice, part-time permanent employment. So I'm seeing some of those real impacts. So we're talking about the issues more, but what is the actual impact on real change within the industry? And I have seen the steps go backwards, which I hate to say that to be the case because I do think we're talking about it more, but the measurable impacts are what matter. And so for trans people, we really see this impact on every part of their employment journey, being consistently told they're just not the right fit. And I've heard similar things from Black and Indigenous communities being told these things, as well as autistic communities and some other disability communities. The discovery of a mass grave for 215 children in Canada last week at a former school for Indigenous children is prompting calls for a nationwide search at other similar institutions for more burials. We started our radar penetrating research on June the 2nd of 2021. As of yesterday, we have hit 751 unmarked graves. Indigenous leaders say school deaths were underreported, and the actual number of children in unmarked graves across Canada could be in the tens of thousands. They want to find them all. For many Canadians, one of the most shocking and distressing events that occurred during the pandemic was the tragic discovery of mass graves at the former sites of residential schools. It emphasized in the starkest terms the cruelty, injustice, and harm perpetrated against Indigenous people by colonization, Christian churches, and the state-sponsored policies to get the Indian out of the child that began a confederation and continued across generations into the 1990s. For Canada's nonprofits, the revelations of cultural genocide in residential schools turned a harsh light on the sector's long-term failures to take a more meaningful role in supporting Indigenous-led groups and organizations. A study in 2021, for example, revealed that of the $8.3 billion in grants of over $30,000 given by registered charities, less than $47 million went to Indigenous groups, or just 0.5% of the total. It seems clear that for nonprofits addressing weaknesses in their diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, much needs to change in order for the sector to become a more proactive ally to Indigenous-led organizations. 
For Tim Fox, Vice President of Indigenous Relations and Equity Strategy with Calgary Foundation, the emotional impact of the mass graves' discoveries and the Pope's subsequent visit and apology for the Church's role in the residential school tragedy has dramatically changed the conversation around relations between Indigenous groups and nonprofit organizations. It's coming to the realization that historical context matters. The roots of how we exist as an organization stem from inequality. They stem from systemic racism. For the listeners here, I would invite all of them to sort of really try to unpack their own organizational script. I feel like we're entering a time where historically the notion and the intentional efforts were to assimilate Indigenous people and racialized people. For me, and for the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think one of the underlying messages through that work is those days are gone. We are no longer at a point where we should expect Indigenous people to adapt or to assimilate into the dominant narrative because of all of the things that we are recovering, discovering, reconciling with, trying to reconcile with. We're now asking the question, what are you going to do as a system to change? Tim Fox also has some suggestions for nonprofits as to how they can alter their hiring practices to better reflect the communities they serve. You'll notice on every Calgary Foundation job posting, it doesn't matter what we're hiring for, the first thing you're going to read is our commitment to reconciliation and racial equity. It doesn't mean to say that these potential applicants have to be experts in that, but they do have to realize that they're applying to an organization that upholds this and it's going to be very much a part of their role, whatever their role is. It could be donor relations, it could be granting administration, impact investing, even administration. They're going to be a part of this. And in that interview process, that allows us to explain that in deeper detail. And for the most part, and most recently, some of the positions that we have hired on for have applied to us for that very reason, because we are so open to trying to really mobilize this work in an impactful way, in a way that is demonstrating some change. This conversation around equality and reconciliation and racial equity is not a new conversation for Indigenous people or racialized people. The only reason why it's getting so much attention is because of the external factors and unfortunate incidences that have had to take place publicly that is now being captured all over society. I want people to know this isn't new work for us. We have been prepared to sort of move this work along and now it's being surfaced, it's being amplified. You're hearing about it a lot more, but it's still very new. So there's still a lot of work to do to embed that within the fabric of our knowledge systems. Tougher conversations inside nonprofits about the lack of meaningful relationships with Indigenous organizations is something Chris Archie encourages. She's Chief Executive Officer of the Circle on Philanthropy, a nonprofit that works alongside Indigenous groups to offer personal introductions to granting organizations as well as technical skill and capacity building related to navigating the philanthropic sector. As she explains, the Circle has been developing tools and resources to help nonprofits become better partners with Indigenous-led organizations. One of the things that we've been working on over the last couple of years is a very particular tool called the L4A, which stands for the Learning for Action Tool. This is a series of questions that are both required for individuals and for 
organizations to answer that help us as a circle understand what is the journey that these organizations are on. What we discovered is that as we created this list of questions that we were really curious about, that we wanted to know who was doing what, what we discovered is that many philanthropic organizations are not necessarily collecting the data to help tell us the story about the good work they're doing. So we created a year-long peer-based learning opportunity called the Partners in Reciprocity, whereby teams of folks from settler philanthropic organizations journey over the course of a year to build skill sets and capacities to have tougher conversations, to acknowledge the ways that white supremacy shows up in their organizations, and ultimately give them the ability to answer the questions in the Learning for Action tool. We're asking what percentage of your annual giving goes to Indigenous-led charitable organizations versus Indigenous-benefiting organizations. That requires an organization to do their internal analysis. It requires of them to do what is rightfully their administrative burden to make sense of the information that comes in through them that they can share and make explicit for organizations like my own who can do a level of advocacy. So the reason I talk about this piece is because there's a lack of data that helps me as a leader for a national Indigenous organization talk about the experience of Indigenous movements and nations and charitable organizations because the systemic structures at play have never recognized a value for asking questions that help me make better decisions, that help me advocate on behalf of our members. So I believe that the charitable sector in this country is incredibly creative and incredibly generous. And I think we need the permission to continue being bold and audacious. However, if we are creating the kinds of policies that are limited by the worries of what ifs, overly concerned about what could go wrong, we are ultimately not only limiting the sector's innovation, we are limiting the possibility for service to folks across this country. And I think that that would be incredibly sad. The Charity Village Survey of Nonprofits, available on our website, charityvillage.com, found that just over one-third of surveyed employers indicated their organizations had already put in place policies, practices, or strategies to foster inclusion specific to Indigenous communities. While this is encouraging, Jesse Williams feels that some of these organizations may have missed an important step. Jesse is Director of Business Development and Communications at New Relationship Trust, an organization dedicated to providing funding opportunities to First Nation communities to support them in building powerful and resilient communities on their own terms. A citizen of the Squamish Nation, Jessie leans on wisdom gained from her lived experience, educational journey, professional practice, and elder teachings to develop and deliver reconciliation and decolonization efforts that enhance Indigenous presence, voice, and capacity. Nonprofits who are seeking to bring Indigenous perspective and presence into their DEI journey and on boards and in their workplaces start with relationship building based on the value of reciprocity. This needs to be done prior to doing DEI work. This is how you begin to create space for Indigenous folks to be a part of your planning and strategy building for boards, operations, and your workplaces. 
Either begin by reaching out to First Nations communities with which your organization takes place on the traditional territories of, or reach out to an experienced Indigenous organization that might be in alignment with your not-for-profit services. Also consider allocating resources towards hiring an Indigenous knowledge holder or sector or industry expert to contribute and inform your DI planning and strategy development. They can be a strong advocate in carrying out reciprocal relationship building in a relevant and informed way. This step is the most important place to begin with because we truly believe that relationship building is nation building. This may take some time, but I encourage you to invest in this important first step. It will be well worth the investment of your DEI work. Jesse Williams also shared an example of how Indigenous voices are being gradually invited to participate in nonprofit sector conversations, strategy, and delivery efforts through partnership development. In my work with the New Relationship Trust, I noticed that the Vancouver Foundation had created an Indigenous Priorities Program where they hired Indigenous staff to lead, develop, and to deliver their granting program geared towards serving Indigenous communities and organizations. So I reached out to their director in order to begin to develop what I was hoping to be a meaningful relationship, given we both work to uplift the same community. And through that relationship building this past year, we were able to partner with the Vancouver Foundation, the provincial government, and United Way BC to distribute a grant for not-for-profit organizations to support recovering resiliency. With that partnership, the New Relationship Trust was invited and allocated $5 million for us to, in a culturally appropriate way, provide that granting service to Indigenous not-for-profit organizations. So on top of being invited as a partner and the operationality, our team was allowed to maintain culturally appropriate decision-making regarding the delivery of the grant program from a low-barrier Indigenous values-based approach. This is where I am seeing more advancement regarding Indigenous perspective and how we participate with the not-profit sector. In my conversation with Dr. Wendy Sukir, founder of the Diversity Institute at Toronto Metropolitan University, we talked about the need for nonprofits to do the heavy lifting of genuine, meaningful transformational change. Paying lip service to the cause of DEI just won't cut it. Leaders need to walk the talk. Good intentions aren't good enough anymore, and you see a lot of people starting to get called out for performative EDI activities. You have to. We've done work with large charities that say, oh, (laughs) there are people who are racialized, who have money. We should adjust our philanthropic strategies so that we can reach into their pockets. But if you create a strategy to position yourself to fundraise with racialized communities and your entire staff are white, or you don't have programs that address the specific needs of newcomers, racialized people, and so on, or your website is all nice little white children, you've really got a problem. And I think increasingly people in the community are paying attention to whether or not organizations are walking the talk. And so you have to be a bit more thoughtful about signing up for this proclamation or flying a rainbow flag if you're not going to then follow through with a very deliberate strategy. I would say that's 
that accountability and the expectations have increased, but so has the accountability. And you can't get away with the same kind of general statements about diversity is our strength. People are looking for action. With her extensive background in helping Black, Indigenous, and other visible minority women become board-ready to help bridge the gap of diversified voices in the sector, I asked Trish Mandewo of Synergy Executive and Boards Consulting Group for any tips or strategies that can empower individuals working for nonprofits who want to become agents of change within their organizations. The advice I have is kind of like tied in in three words. Listen learn, and then lead. If you take this approach, you're going to listen to the people that you're serving, to the people that you're working with, and you're going to be able to understand them at a different level. But in order to listen, you need to start off by being curious, right? So is that curiosity that leads you to listening to other people and also learning about them? So when we don't see the differences that we see, we see one humanity. We see that we are intrinsically intertwined and that the goal is for all of us to live harmoniously, right? So that's that listening and learning about each other. The third thing and the last thing is then leading from a place of empathy. If you're leading from a place of empathy, you are not only looking out to what excites you or what's what you know, but you're looking at it from a lens, from a global perspective. You're leading from the outside looking in and you have everyone's goals and needs in mind. And that's where really the true leadership comes in. In the surveys conducted for our report, we discovered that many nonprofit professionals don't know where or who to turn to for resources that will help foster diversity, equity and inclusion in their organizations. A good starting point for some might well be the report itself. Entitled Diversity in Canada's Nonprofit Sector, we surveyed over 3,000 nonprofit professionals, including job seekers and employers. We asked questions about topics such as DEI hiring practices, taking first steps towards inclusion of Indigenous communities, and what things job seekers are looking for in the nonprofit sector. It's a fascinating read and a valuable resource for any organization. Download your copy today at charityvillage.com. Charity Village also reached out to our partners to develop some exciting new tools and resources that can help nonprofits achieve their DEI objectives. One such project includes DEI e-learning courses developed with a diversity institute. Here's Dr. Wendy Sukier to tell us all about them. I'm very excited about the e-learning courses. We're looking at offering an introduction to EDI for nonprofits, which will help with just level setting in terms of basic terminology, the business case, why it's important, and so on. Creating an inclusive organization for nonprofit leaders. Here, I'm really excited because, again, it's an opportunity to get beyond consciousness raising to actually helping organizations develop strategies by looking at governance, human resources, values and culture, measurement, their entire business processes and engagement and outreach. 
We are digging in on the issue of unconscious bias, privilege, and how to become an ally because this allows individuals, regardless of where they are in the organization, to take action. And then the fourth course that we have planned is a very deep dive specifically into issues around diversity and philanthropy and fundraising because it's very clear that the landscape is changing. As the population is changing, so are the opportunities and the strategies around fundraising. Charity Village is also working with Trish Mandewo and Jesse Williams on e-learning courses designed to help boards become more diverse and inclusive. First, here's Trish with an overview of the courses currently in development. With the course that we are co-creating, we are able to help them have that basic understanding of diversity and also have them go into the culture space because we can talk about diversity all day, but when it comes right down to it, you need to create the safe and brave spaces so that the people with those intersectional identities that we talked about can be able to step in and can be able to feel them to feel that they can be themselves in there. So we're gonna we talk about that in the course. We also talk about understanding the reason why DEI is important. Oftentimes we talk about the business case, but there's more to it than just the business case. We also look into understanding the cultural competences as well as the cultural continuum. What does that look like? The other course that we're working together on is really looking at the boardroom from a decolonization perspective. What does a decolonized board look like? What do they need to stop doing in order to be moving towards that decolonizing? So we dive deeper into those. Uh, lastly, I'd like to say that for us, you can't do any of this work without having any hope. So we touch a little bit in the hope action theory and to see how you can take that theory and apply it into the approach that the organizations take as they try to reach this ultimate goal of inclusion. Jesse Williams described how the e-learning courses are designed to help boards decolonize their practices and embrace a more indigenous approach. Some of the work that we do includes providing workshops and training and lesson planning for decolonizing boardrooms with diverse organizations across sectors and industries. We've also done governance foundation training with an all indigenous woman cohort from across BC in partnership with Minerva BC, as well as support boards and committees with their understanding and growth in DEI and decolonization for boards and executive positions. And of course, we are honored to co-create an online program for Charity Village regarding decolonizing and DEI of boards and leadership. This is a testament of what is possible when multiple partners come together. As a First Nations woman, I have come to recognize how much I need brilliant humans and experienced organizations to stand beside to create awareness and extend invitations to others to see themselves as valuable participants in understanding and incorporating Indigenous perspectives, values, ways of knowing and being, and reconciliation into DEI efforts for the betterment of all humans from all four directions. Because Indigenous perspective is about being a good human, good humans to each other today, good humans to Mother Earth, and good humans who are creating a future worthy of generations to come. Charity Village is also partnering with Accessibi, 
to help make nonprofit websites more accessible for people with disabilities, including our own online home, charityvillage.com. I asked Josh Basili how this resource, actually a widget, works as a web navigational aid. We do have an incredible tool called the Access Widget. It's an AI-powered solution that you can put onto your website. It scans your website. It finds all the different places where there's accessibility barriers, and then it kind of fills in the cracks. And it creates these profile systems for whether you have epilepsy, to turn on that profile on, stops all blinking lights, it turns down other colors. If you have a mobility disability, it turning that one on, that profile, it allows your on-screen keyboard to work with the different menus, the drop-down menus, and all the different things that you need to better navigate using a keyboard, and it does the same. With reading software, it creates a lot more accessibility and usability on a site that might not be built from scratch with accessibility in mind. So it's just a great option, and there's so many other different content, color, orientation adjustments that you can make with it. A lot of people are seeing them more often, where on the side of the screen there's like a little accessibility icon or tool, you click on that. But the access widget from Accessby is one of the most powerful in the world right now. I love it, and whenever I use it, I feel like I've got superpowers and choice on how to navigate a site. DEI has continued to gain prominence as a key principle and goal in nonprofit hiring practices, employee engagement, and board recruitment. At the same time, most nonprofit employers know that making their workplaces more diverse, equitable, and inclusive requires a great deal of self-reflection and the embracing of new practices and augmented workplace policies. At Charity Village, we believe that our new series of courses on diversity, equity, and inclusion will contribute to the important work organizations are undertaking. We're proud to develop and offer, in partnership with some of the leading experts in Canada, e-learning DEI courses specially designed for the nonprofit sector. These include an introduction to DEI and best practices for nonprofits, DEI fundamentals, decolonizing the boardroom, an introduction to unconscious bias, privilege, and becoming a nonprofit ally, and anti discrimination, sensitivity, and diversity training. With these new offerings, Charity Village is now becoming the source of the largest inventory of DEI e-learning courses exclusively dedicated to the nonprofit sector in Canada. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their valuable insights into diversity, equity, and inclusion in the nonprofit sector. Be sure to visit our website, charityvillage.com, for more information on the resources mentioned in this episode and for show notes on this and other topics. You'll also find the video conversations with our guests in their entirety. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, crowdfunding, e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. Visit us today at charityvillage.com. On the next Charity Village Connects podcast, workplace mental health. It was an important issue pre-pandemic, but over the last few years, it's taken on an even greater relevance, including in the nonprofit sector. COVID-19, the work burnout epidemic, and the great resignation and retirement have all emphasized cracks that were emerging before 2020. 
One year after we first covered this issue on Charity Village Connects, we're back with a checkup on the sector. How are nonprofits faring today? What's changed since last year? And perhaps more importantly, what practical steps can sector leaders implement today that will better support the mental health and well-being of their staff and volunteers tomorrow? Checking up on workplace mental health, next time on Charity Village Connects. Thanks for listening.